This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. The show putting the arts in the social, cultural, historical and political contexts here on London's Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm your host, Tom Overton. Today I'm joined in the studio by the writer and filmmaker Jalu Go. Hello. Hello, Tom. <laughs> Jalu's books include six novels. A, con- a concise uh, Chinese-English dictionary for lovers was shortlisted for the Orange Prize for Fiction in 2007. And none other than Ursula, Ursula K. Le Guin wrote that it was more than a love story. Its psychology is politically acute and things noted lightly in it linger in the mind. It succeeds in luring the Western reader into an alien way of thinking, a trick only novels can pull off and indeed one of their finest tricks. In 2013, Xiaolu was named one of Granta's best young novelists. She has also written poems, essays, a memoir, um, Once Upon a Time in the East, uh, which was published in 2017, and has co-authored two manifestos on what she calls metaphysical filmmaking, in which, uh, it's a quote from the manifesto, in contrast to the mode of operation of Hollywood, in which the viewer enters and is swallowed by the dream, our cinema is the awaking of a lucid dream, a controlled abandon, a sober pandemonium. Our vision is that of a crazed honesty falling headfirst into reality. Xiaolu's output on that front is similarly various. Uh, the short film Far and Near won her the ICA Beck's Future Prize in 2003. The feature She a Chinese won the 2009 Golden Leopard at the Locarno Festival. 2008, 2008's uh, We Went to Wonderland, uh, Five Men in a Caravaggio in 2018, and Late at Night Voices of Ordinary Madness are something more like documentary, generally non-fiction but with impressionistic flourishes. 2011's UFO in Her Eyes, which adapted from the novel of the same name, is a kind of satirical, surreal science fiction. The films have been shown in retrospectives at the Pompidou Centre in 2010, the Swiss Cinematheque in 2011, and with the Greek Film Archives in 2018. And we're currently right in the middle of a retrospective at the Whitechapel Gallery, uh, titled She, a Chinese, here in London. There were screenings on the 9th and 12th of May, and two more on the 25th and 26th of May, which are Saturdays and Sundays, so you can... You can spend all day there, and we'll post links to to, um, to those those events uh, on along with everything else we discuss, uh, and the listen again link on the show's Twitter at sweet underscore two one two. So welcome, Xiaolu. Thanks very much for coming along. Hi, thank you. <laughs> your work quite often draws on aspects of your biography, so I thought it might be useful for listeners if we started by talking about that memoir I mentioned, uh, which takes you from Shitang province uh, by the East China Sea to Hackney in East London, where you live now. I wonder if you could give us a kind of uh, a sense of the, the flavour and kind of outline of the book. Mm. It is strange because... Um I'm not that old yet to to say I wrote memoir, but somehow when you when you wrote about your life, um, it is you know there are forty years of experience um, in village in China and then in big city like Beijing, mm. and then leaving China, come to Europe and then lived in different places in Europe. So it become it's kind of you know for for the industry it's it's sort of memoir. I guess for me it's. An account, a long and detailed account of a childhood, which I, because I lived with my grandparents who were illiterate, and mm. a very brutal fishing village in southeast China by East China Sea, mm. um, in Zhejiang Province. I thought that early years, the seven years I spent there, was kind of traumatic, but also so dramatic that it built all my almost all my narratives later on as mm. a novelist, as a filmmaker. So, you know, if you believe in the childhood impact on the artist's later life, this is like kind of typical example. Um, and I thought now, I left China 2002, now it's nearly, let's say, 17, 18 years mm. living in the West. Um, I wonder my 17 years experience in the West, you know, is as powerful as my early years, say, I hmm. lived in China for 29 years. So it's interesting, those things were mentioned and wrote in, in this book, um, Once Upon a Time 
uh, in the east mm. and it sort of takes you as you say from uh from your, your upbringing uh sort of through into your sort of going to film school and yeah i think i was quite lonely and a kind of desperate child i don't know why i think perhaps my father this you know the distant parents parents in the in the town um near my fishing village had some kind of i don't know genetic imprint mm. on my early years but probably um my father was a painter ink bush painter and um even though i didn't know him well until i was eight nine years old moved mm. to live with them in in that big town i was desperate to leave those i small village um I think maybe because the village life was quite brutal, and uh, my grandparents we we didn't have any communication mm. between, and the house was a silent house in my memory, dark, cold, silent house. Um, I was longing to to leave, so when I later on um, returned to this supposed hometown where my parents lived, I just also wanted to leave, mm. and I discovered my father was an artist, and I thought, okay, that's a better job if mm. I could. Um, use that as as kind of drive. Then I thought, um, what kind of art I would do? I thought, okay, literature or cinema. Mm. And uh, it was funny at that time in eighties or early nineties China, um, cinema was very revolutionary mm. um, kind of act because the video camera just became available in the market. Mm. So you don't, as as a young woman, you didn't need to buy or own a film camera you know mm. there's no there's no obstacle you just borrow a small video camera you can start to make film mm. and then i thought i i better take the the most advanced kind of technical um machinery or artistic form mm. so then i went to beijing film academy mm. i think maybe before we carry on talking about film it'd be good to hear a bit from the book if possible. could you could you read us a, a, yeah. a short a short section just to give us a sense of, of what it's like absolutely um there's lots of short sections in this memoir um what 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 do you fancy um <laughs> <laughs> about the beach or uh, yeah maybe that, or about so. the 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 drawn british in the in the in kind of fable way yeah there's maybe some of the the that kind of fabulous quality because it connects to some of the stuff we'll talk later maybe and also it's kind of it's an interesting connection from between uh where the book starts and where it ends as well yeah sure um there's one section um is about the young girl which which is me of course but seven years old so mm. i always refer to her as a her shaolu character and the section is called as a drowning british mm. and that was the first time i heard the world beyond my village is the world beyond China. Those foreigners, the British, the Americans, the Japanese, mm. um, when I was six years old. And because I didn't grow up with my parents, so there's a man who runs our village bus station. He was sort of my father because he was only one. I, I saw every day I went to the bus station, I remember, because that's that's a place where the bus came out every day or, or came in with mm. all the you know new people, old people. And I always talk to him, this station master. So this mm. is a conversation between the younger me and, and this, this older man, actually, about my grandfather. So, so station master said, your grandfather was very brave and went everywhere looking for sea eels and having adventures. Really, I said, what kinds of adventures? Lots. He even fought in the war against the Japanese when he was young. Really? Yes. Once during the war, he and other fishermen saved hundreds of foreign soldiers from drowning and being eaten by sharks. What? What foreign soldiers? I had no idea what the station master meant. Ah, that was a long, long time ago. Thirty years before you were born, Shalu. The station master's eyes moved to his wife, who was sweeping with a broom. She was cleaning up the sugarcane pulp he had spat out on the floor. You are too young to understand this, but Chosan Islands was a, was a very important place for foreigners, as important as Hong Kong back then. The foreigners were called the British, and they came from a tiny place on the other side of the world. They had big noses, yellow hair, and hairy bodies. 
they had been causing troubles for the Chinese for a long time. They forced us to buy bad things, something like opium. And they liked to live by the port because the seafood was the best and the beaches were very beautiful. Wow, I was a bit scared. I would have loved to have met those yellow-haired British foreigners. So were the big noses angry with the Japanese then? Yes, they were fighting them too. In 1942, the Japanese came and attacked the locals. The fishermen of Zhoushan preferred the big noses to the Japanese dwarfs. Those Japanese, they had captured many big noses in the big battle. And then they were taking them in ships across the sea to Japan, passing Zhoushan en route. It was a massive boat, but it sank after being hit by some other big noses called Americans near your grandfather's island, the, sta the station master said. Oh, and why did they do that then? Oh, the Americans were fighting the dwarves too. The, Brit the British big noses on the Japanese boat were drowning. So your grandfather and some of other fishermen seeing this all unfolding from the beach and felt pity for the big noses and wanted to help because they hated the Japanese then. No one in this world is as cruel as the Japanese. And your grandfather and his friends pushed out their fishing boats and rescued the Westerners with their nets and oars. Because of this brave act, the fishermen were honored by the government. The big-nosed chief of Hong Kong wanted to thank the fishermen, and your grandfather included, who was among the bravest. And they promised them a brand new shining boat with a motto, not just sails. But the boat never arrived, and some people have, must have stolen it on the way, those bastards. The station master posed and knitted his brow. Motherfuckers, he said. The British big noses should have learned their lessons that we Chinese are kind people because we have forgiven them for what they did to us during the Opium Wars. I hope they will always remember that. Oh, now I felt completely overwhelmed by this war story. I couldn't understand why all these foreign big noses were fighting on our Chinese coastline and why a Japanese boat was carrying big nose prisoners from the other side of the world and why the American big noses bombed them. My head was exploding. I certainly didn't want to live through war, but I was happy to hear that my mute and bad-tempered grandfather had once been a hero and kind-hearted a man of mercy, a man who helped others, even foreigners. Thanks very much. I think that kind of sets up the kind of the international sort of like dimensions of some of the things we're going to talk about really well. Um, and one thing that it reminded me was that um, sort of in that moment in the book, particularly, you talk, you talk a lot about um, your, your your grandparents and your, and, uh, your parents sort of, um, well, one of them does, one of them doesn't, sort of like uh, their relationship to, to peasant culture. And uh, I was uh, reminded that you're doing uh, also the... So on the 25th and the 26th is the, the Whitechapel events, but on the 24th uh, you're speaking at, uh, at Tate uh, with Nika Shukler about the Van Gogh exhibition, sort of. And how did, how did that come about? I mean, like, what, what were the... Because it feels like there are connections there between sort of the way that Van Gogh sort of like evokes peasant culture in France and the way that you evoke it in, in China. That's very interesting. Um, it's an accident, I guess. Um, although... The Van Gogh letters and the film, you know, the, the old film about Van Gogh, um, The Passion for Life, or, or mm. what was the title, um, was very popular in China, especially mm. in the 80s and 90s. It was a big, big deal, you know, the, the stuff of Van Gogh. And uh, I remember the first introduction about Van Gogh was from my father, um, who was an ink painter. And he, mm. uh, because he was in the labor camp for years, mm. and then later he told me, well, I was punished by... Um, painting a, a painting doesn't you know doesn't have soldiers or peasants smile in my paint in my painting mm. uh, because I was imitating Van Gogh mm. um, Van Gogh's landscape in France it didn't have soldiers or peasants it's just pure landscape mm. wheat fields or sunflower 
And then my father was punished by doing that because he didn't put the revolutionary elements mm. in his painting. And I think that was the first time it's sort of complained complained from my father about the injustice, you know, kind of, you know, the, the government to to him and to his work, artwork. Mm. And then later on, um, I got this book, The, 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 the Letters, mm. uh, between Van Gogh and his brother. And I thought... It's amazing. It's very touching. So I wrote that in my memoir um, years later, uh, 40 years later, I wrote this, you know, the whole connection. And it was funny one day when I when I got this um, email from Tid Britain said, would you come to talk about Van Gogh days in Britain? Mm. When he was 20 years old, he came to Britain. Mm. And basically, he walked um, in London, um, in South West London. Um, and I thought, that's interesting. Did you read <laughs> The memoir, or yeah. you know how how this came about, um, but I think they were thinking because um, my experience when I came to London that was seventeen, eighteen years ago, mm. I wrote quite a bit about London, mm. even though I guess the connections a young artist from from another culture, how she or he tried to to find the clues to make connection in the art world or always with just the real people, mm. um, the British people or, or the working class um, East Enders or, I mean, mm. in Van Gogh's case, they were not really kind of working class. You know, it, it, it slightly, I, I think, <laughs> my experience a bit different, but also Van Gogh from West Europe. So mm. I wouldn't say, you know, very far away yeah. cultural experience, but... I, f for me, it was very alien when I came to London. It's so far away. The, the, the reference, you know, simply just the food and the weather was just uh, very alien to me. Yeah, it's um, yeah, and no, I suppose it's something that um, that some of some of the films sort of pick up as uh, as sort of moments. And but also what that. Um... But I hope I do talk about um, how a young artist uh, respond to British reality. Yeah, you know, especially. I felt my my early my three the first three years in London was like a, a tramp, a young woman tramp. You know, tried to understand the streets, and I was writing my first novel in English. Yeah. And I also tried to make my film, my first film. Yeah. And then when I was reading those letters by by Van Gogh um, about <sighs> his experience in London, uh, actually they were much more jollier, happier than my experience. <laughs> so, um, but he didn't, he was an artist then. He was 21, 22. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think it's crucial, you know, he became an artist after that experience in London. Yeah. Um, yet in my case, I think I was doing, I already published some books, but I was completely an alien in, in, in England. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the, so, I mean, it's one of the things that, um, in sort of different ways uh you're talking about sort of then sort of that turning it into kind of the like film like uh, so it's sheer chinese the the film that the um that the Whitechapel retrospective on sort of like draws in sort of fictional sort of uh filmic form on, on those experiences a bit and uh we went to wonderland uh 2000 in 2008 which sort of very d draws on some of those experiences in a different in a different way because it's a film about your your parents um but it's a documentary one absolutely um I think sometimes non-fiction or documentary form um, is the best way to capture the, the raw reality. So in a way, it, it, kind of fiction, f fiction form, either whether novel or, or film, it lacks of this, this immediate, direct, raw power, even though fiction form can be much more you know, satisfying if you can build um, a, a absolute uh, this kind of fictional reality a complete representation of a drama a dramatic situation mm. but i i think the last 10 years i i was longing to just make documentary essays or write fiction uh, non-fiction books mm. and that that film we went to wonderland was kind of a perfect case mm. and also the other film i i did after that film called late at night voices mm. of ordinary madness mm. And it's about street people in London, especially in East and North London, mm. and tramps and beggars, um, or you know those rundown pubs run by retired local people. Mm. Um, it's sort of my response to pre-Brexit Britain, mm. in a way, you know, from foreigners' eye, trying to study this society. Um, you know, the, I just felt the working class. 
the life condition, living condition is still very low. Mm. And I was reading, I remember when I was making that film, uh, I think the film is showing on 26th um, May. I remember I was reading George Orwell's book called The Down and Out in Paris and London. Mm. And he wrote it in 1920 or 1917, such a long time ago. But mm. the, the poverty of London in his book, it seemed to not change very much um, nowadays. Mm. So it was quite a shocking and powerful, you know, for me to kind of find a literary reference for my film. And mm. I thought the documentary form would be perfect to represent that. Yeah, and you, in that film, it's kind of structured also through news reports, and you get a kind of sense of um, kind of time passing in sort of late light news, sort of like, was there, was there a sort of um, a template for presenting it like that? Was, it, was that a reference to anyone? Mm. Well, it was clear I didn't want to make straightforward activist film because I think that would be quite flat. Mm. Also, it can be just uh, out of fashion very soon. And I thought it's such a kind of dark reality, you know, documenting street life. I need to be very careful by, um, I must insert some kind of artistic kind of, um, kind of seed or, you know, punctuation into this flat structure. So mm. I often do that with my film or with my book. I throw in kind of by chapter by chapter an element which is kind of alien from the content, um, you know, in a narrative. So with that film, I use this news newsreader, um, which which I found all this news not on the in Independent or Guardian. I found, you know, on the on the, the gossip newspaper, you know, tabloid newspaper, mm. and then took those funny bits, you know, about mm. diet or or you know superstars, exactly, you know, Amy Winehouse, or you know, football th stuff. So I thought this is kind of flooded everywhere in Britain, you know, and I think lots of people kind of drowned in that kind of news rather than the real. The real news we, we need to learn and understand. Mm. And I thought that is a reality is so fabricated under that um, the style, you know, the gossips, the, the tabloid news style. So so I actually I found my publisher to to do that, to read for me, um, oh, which right. is quite funny. Um, <laughs> and I thought, oh, I need kind of Andy Warhol type of kind of split screen to wash out my very real documentary footage. So yeah. you see the newsreel, the, the person kind of, you know, become multiplied, you know, 10 times, 20 times. And then in the end of the film, she was multiplied uh, 50 times, yeah. uh, exploded uh, in, the, in the one screen. And I thought that's kind of like our, our mental reality, how being fract fractured, fragmented, and uh, kind of abused by the yeah. by social media in a way, and by the by the low quality tablet news. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the reasons that uh, it's so great in the film. The one of the great sort of thinkers about that kind of mental landscape, Mark Fisher, sort of um, it, it turns up sort of towards the end. Uh, and thanks for mentioning Mark Fisher. It's such a Oh, interesting and a very sad connection um, because in that film, uh, Late at Night, you know, such a documentary film, I thought I need um, a more intellectual voice to end the film because the film, the footage was too real in a way. You know, mm. if you want to do something beyond the reality, have some power in the future, you kind of need a more abstract element in the end of the film. So I, I found a Mark Fisher who was teaching, at that time he, he was teaching in the in the East London, I think it's a it's a East East London University. Yeah. Near near City Airport, mm. and he was very kind. He said, "Yeah, come, I talk to you." Mm. So that was you know a few years before he died. Mm. Um, it was really incredible afternoon. He 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 told me about this thing about um, he didn't mention his own depression, but he talked about how the depression's been privatized mm. in our society you know it's institutions society produces individual depression the mental illness but that mental illness being privatized as if it's your responsibility to deal with it mm. rather than it's collective uh, illness that the mm. society produced and reproduced itself and he was talking about it and i didn't somehow click kind of click his own you know his own kind of depression. Mm. And uh, two years later, three years later, when he killed himself, and I thought, God, that's incredible, the, the whole connection. And he, as a final kind of commentary in my film, you know, the film is, is quite dark, I have mm. to say. You know, if you're looking for a Sony film in the weekend <laughs> in the White Chapel Gallery, maybe, you know, it's not right for you to see, but uh, I felt a really strange connection. Um, 
after three years later when he killed himself. Um, and yeah. I thought that the, the quality of film, my film, was so dark. And there's the depressive quality. And with his book and his life, mm. yeah. There are sort of, um, in that film, there are, especially in the newsreader segments, there are kind of elements of, of humour and uh, it's that they sort of bring in a sort of slightly different dimension. And some of the, the people who are interviewed talking to camera are just so kind of charming and that, that there are elements of lightness to it too, I think. Absolutely. So that's a film, it's, it's a sister film to my earlier film called Once Upon a Time, A Proletarian. Mm. Um, and that film, Once Upon a Time, A Proletarian, is a documentary film with 12 chapters about you know, low people, street people, the working class, the the workers in the street, in the hotel, mm. um, in the market. Um, so it's kind of like social study of how Chinese laborers live and work. And I thought I should make a kind of, you know, the echo film, a sister film in the West. Mm. So then I, I did that in London. Mm. And strangely, the one in London was much darker and the lack of the certain humor or, or <laughs> lightness. But the immigrants in my film in, in London are much brighter than the local. Mm. You know, the white English working class seem to be more kind of desperate mm. in the film than the immigrants, than the Jamaicans, than the Africans, you know, who, who had a, such a difficult life but moved to London. But ha has a kind of, in my film, they had a higher spirit. Mm. It's a... Uh Sorry, so you're listening to Sweet 212 on Resonance 104.4 FM. Uh, I'm Tom Overton, and I'm talking to Xia Lu Go about her retrospective at the Whitechapel Gallery, which is on at the moment. Um, that um, just mention of, of Mark Fisher and sort of some of the sort of theoretical thinking about some of the things you were talking about there sort of reminded me of uh, a line from uh, one of the two manifestos uh, about metaphysical cinema that you wrote and I quoted from just right at the beginning there's, there's a line here that sort of struck me uh, it's, it's that narrative promotes uh, consumption of life things in life known, named and controlled it reduces the world to a meal to be eaten by a hungry ego narrative is the capitalism of emotion um, and I thought having just mentioned those um, that manifesto I thought you could, could you just explain a bit about how that came about like mm. the idea of having a manifesto for your, your filmmaking so I wrote these uh, two manifestos, film manifestos, about 10 years ago. Um, I, I read that in, in a tribute in Paris in the Pompidou Centre uh, when they did my, I think at that time was, I had seven, seven films altogether, a sort of retrospective, but now in White Trouble they, they, they have 11 films because uh, after that I made a, a few more films. Mm. And I was reading quite aloud <laughs> in, in, in Paris in the Central Pompidou when they, they were screening my films. I, I was a bit younger because um, 10 years ago I was fed up with not able to find the funding to make fiction film mm. and also not able to convince the film industry to make my kind of film, which I guess, you know, for, for their standards, lack of commercial value and lack of narrative. And I think it was like a lifelong argument of... You know, storytelling is not the final goal. The narrative is not the final goal. In mm. my books, in my films, I use storytelling narrative as as a, as a tool, as a device. But mm. it, the final goal is something beyond that. You can say it's a meaning or message or feeling. is is something much beyond that. And I didn't want to, to be you know mere machine, the story producing machine. Mm. And that's quite depressing for for you know for someone like me who does produce lots. of books and films but none of them in the, in the main main industry you know so mm. i had to kind of self fund all my films by writing books novels um it feels like a lifelong struggle to 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 do that mm. um and thanks for mentioning that um um this one bit you you read is from the first manifesto I co-wrote with Stephen Barker. Mm. Um so i might just read this two paragraph because the other bit um is, is slightly technical. Sure. So this one is, <clears throat> I wrote, I think about 2009, um, when I was living in France, mm. um, trying to make the film called The UFO in Her Eyes. Mm. Um, the film will be showing on 25th May in the White Chapel. That's good, because I want to talk about that in a minute. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of a mad film. I was punished by playing naughty. 
um, using all the money <laughs> from Germany, but the film didn't, you know, basically conquer the major huge film festival. So it was just uh, released in two countries yeah. and, and it just circled around in, in a few film festivals. And after that, I couldn't really find the proper funding to make film. That's why I ended up making all the documentary essays. Yeah. But anyway, so this was the piece I wrote at that time. Metaphysical cinema confronts narrative. Narrative is about a character immersed in a temporary ordered progress of meaning. The person in a narrative form always looks for meaning. And the narrative is about the unfolding of that quest for meaning. Meaning is found or it is not found. And there's a higher meaning where we admire tragic outcomes and see them within some cosmic narrative of birth and death or in the inevitable hubris of human beings or the struggling of individuals and so on. But of course, classical narrative does not intend to put into question meaning, character, and the imperative to find a meaning and the idea that the meaning is there to be had. In some sense, it is theological, insofar as it is tied and trapped to world story. It never puts into question the goal, which is to tell a story. But this addiction to meaning carries with is a kind of death. Meaning, or living live the search for meaning, is one in which reality is obscured. To represent something as wounded or in love is to draw it into the world of meaning and the human ends and the narrative drives. To represent something in this way is to let our concept of it control our camera. In representing it as wounded or in love, we lose the wounding or the love or the wonder about these things, the shine of their being. So this representation habit draws us into the dead end of meaning. It gives us the satisfaction that naming something gives, a sense of control and the power of knowing. But it takes us away from the world by separating us from the unknown. Life carries on with or without meaning. A rock lies on the ground with or without meaning. A life looking for meaning goes on without or with meaning. Pure narrative in trying to conceptually capture everything and give it its place in the order of knowing feeds the human needs for a false and imposed identity. So narrative promotes consumption of life, things in life known, things in life named and controlled. It reduces the world to a meal to be eaten by a hungry ego. So the narrative is the capitalism of emotion mm. that, uh, thanks very much uh, I think that that sets up really I, I want to go back to talks about UFO and her eyes because I think that's, that's a really good way of thinking through some of those ideas about meaning narrative representation and control because um UFO and her eyes was um first you wrote it as a, as a, as a, as a novel first and uh, and then it was um, adapted into a, into a screenplay and um, the because the the book is is quite um is really interesting in structure it's kind of there's a it's a mixture of kind of interviews and there's lots of kind of inserts it's a very visual kind of text as well um and the the film also kind of like has these different sort of it's shifting between these different registers you have um uh you know kind of going through black and white so different perspectives like a kind of different aspect ratios uh and it also has kind of like some quite quite um funny sort of uh moments as well like did, did you was it had you always planned that it would be a novel than a, than a film or how yeah, did that come I, about um i can't remember what exactly um how it began i because I remember that was the, 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 the story. After 10 years I left China, I thought I can probably um, make a little bit bigger film, a mm. kind of very dramatic film about political situation in China, but in a metaphorical way, in the village, how a village is kind of a symbol of the whole country and how 
the village <laughs> represents this idea of ideological warehouse. You know, they they collect socialism, the idea of social, socialism, and then communism, and then when the capitalism useful, you know, they collect mm. this idea. So, all this big idea, you know, the political idea, ideological things become just a pure practical matter as long as we can use to to make the economical um, growth. Mm. Then we do it. Um, so I thought, how to write that story? Um, I need some kind of surreal elements, uh, such mm. as UFO or animals mm. um, or talking animals, mm. and the village is semi-real village. And then I thought it would be very difficult if I write as as a film script because mm. it would be quite mad film script um, with peasant talking, animal talking, and there's UFO that. And also it would be very difficult to find the funding where you know mm. I, I find convinced producers. So I thought maybe. I should write as a novel first. Mm. When the novel published in different country, then I might have more possibility to find my funding. So I wrote that in English while I was living in Paris studying French. Mm. But the whole conversation, the dialogue, the narratives in Chinese, of course, mm. is set in a village in China. So linguistically, it was very strange for me mm. to you know translate. And then not linguistic, only linguistic, but culturally and also metaphorically, how to translate this political idea into a, a dramatic story. Mm. So when I was writing a novel, I thought, um, I need to find a fun form, a playful form, rather than some dry activist kind of, you know, form. So then one day I was kind of browsing this FBI website. <laughs> and I thought, this is amazing. You know, the, 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 the files they recorded, the, the assassination of JFK, mm. uh, the, K, K, uh, the Kennedy file, you know, how the day, what happened, you know, the whole, the whole kind of um, uh, every minute record of before he died being mm. assassinated um and there's a police interview of the whole the the, the all the you know the the the, the 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 murder around it um and there's a crowd you know every page and i think i i read that night some hundred pages of of the police record of mm. jfk's case um i thought that's amazing um that form because the language is quite flat it's mm. kind of universal but plain english mm. um suits me because I am a foreigner. I am not a native English writer. So I had to adopt a certain kind of plain, flat English to write this Chinese peasant story. Mm. Um, and then the, the form on the FBI website is funny, you know, age, um, <laughs> political background, married or not. And then this is a transcript of the interviewer from mm. the police. I loved that straightforward form. I thought this is such a authentic form for mm. for for a novel um i basically i just used that form and that was really the beginning of that novel is yeah. a transcript of police interview of the peasants yeah. in china in that village how when they they saw the ufo you know the event was first they said that they saw ufo arriving and then after that they said that they saw an alien but actually it's just american tourist <laughs> um it turned out to be an American mayor yeah. arriving um, later on. It's the same man. Yeah. So it's it's an event. It's an absurd event. Um, so I used that in my story. And then later on, when I developed into film, I had to basically rewrite the whole story because I realized the literary form in my novel was kind of a schematic intellectual form, lack of dramatic um, kind of tension or the character's in my novel remain as kind of symbol mm. you know it's a, it's a voice which i i cared mm. but in the film it has to be complete visualization dramatization of mm. every character and that space has to be visualized in a dramatic way so i think maybe i'm the only one um in the world saying you know the film is better than the book um <laughs> everyone would say well always you know the literal form is much more authentic than the than the cinema adaptation but in this case i think okay the film is better yeah than my book is so much more developed and then so um i think it's much stronger in the in the final visualization yeah it's interesting how when you have the almost the the eye of the uh the authority figure sort of coming to investigate and it goes into you hear his voice and it goes into black and white and you're you're led to question everything that he's and you it's there's a kind of comic moment with him kind of misunderstanding stuff and uh, the kind of the, sh the slippage of um yeah I, I i mentioned i was punished by play you know by playing different perspective in that fiction mm. film because I think in some film festival or in the in the industry, you know, in the cinema distribution network, um, I remember 
um, some distributor was saying, well, we don't, we don't want to buy this film to put in the cinema. It's too old. Why do you have the black and white all the time? And then the color bit mm. is a narrative. You know, why do you have to separate the two narratives? And also the point of view from the police um, never really truly revealed is that the police mm. point of view, black and white. Um, and I thought, isn't it obvious when you're watching the whole film, you know? Yeah. But, but, but I think, I guess for the for the mass media, the film world, if if you look from Hollywood point of view, this has been too naughty, too playful. Yeah. Uh, they couldn't take it. So I was kind of after that film for some years. I was very down. I thought, God, that's it. I'm no longer gonna make a film. I'm just gonna write novels. Um, it was quite expensive film. Yeah, it's very sort of high production. Yeah, the... and uh, we had to build a uh, almost real UFO in the end. Yeah. Well, we built a kind of hippie type of UFO yeah. uh, on the border between China and Vietnam and it's still sitting there because really? we, we built it with <laughs> very heavy metals, uh, lots of metal and steel construction. <laughs> and it's very uh, tall, you know, I think 15 meters tall. It's large, <laughs> sitting on the rice fields, abandoned the rice fields. And in the monsoon season, in the typhoon season, the whole UFO is just sitting there in the water. And then in the summer, the the, the just on this naked metal structure sitting in the border. And I thought, what a pity we couldn't bring it to Tate Modern or, yeah. or to Whitechapel Gallery. Otherwise, it would be actually much better representation uh, than the film. I wonder if it appears on, you must be able to find it on Google Earth. Or... Would it be great if you yeah. can chase back where, where you have, I'm sure it's still sitting there because yeah. it's impossible to dismantle it. And I think most of the money um, from that film we spent on building that pseudo UFO and I guess that's why I got punished by the market yeah. <laughs> didn't use money in the, in the right place <laughs> but it's uh, I mean it's certainly an irony in, in the way that the film is satirising that sense of the market and kind of like the you know the the you know, the, the, you have the guy coming in at the end who's sort of telling people about how to get rich quick and, uh, you know, sort of with his five, was it five or kind of like, I can't remember. Yeah, five or ten rules, yeah, to, rules to, to, to make yourself rich in in a short time yeah. um, with his crazy style. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that film is, is quite a mad film with a few crazy characters. Um, yeah. when I When I was making it and I, I wanted to do that quite terribly, um, mm without any reservation, and I was younger, 10 mm. years younger. Um, and it's it's funny how the market, you know, how the cinema girls feel, view that film in a very different way. So I'm curious to see how people here will react to that film. Mm. And you, you, I think you, at the, right at the beginning, it's dedicated to uh, to Soy Cuba. Um, Soy Cuba, yeah. Yeah. Can you say a bit, a bit about that? Because I think it's an interesting kind of context for it. Um, because Soy Cuba is... It's really a masterpiece, epic movie made. Is it sixty or seventies? Um, by I think the Soviet. Sixty-four. Yeah, sixty-four by the Soviet filmmaker, um, who made an amazing film called um, "The Cranes Flying," who won Oscar, I think, at that time. Um, so he was communist. You can say he was a communist filmmaker. Something, you know, not exactly like Eisenstein, um, but much more narrative. Mm. And I loved his cinema, Kalatozov. Um, and then So Cuba was one epic film about the Cuba Revolution before and after, uh, I think three chapters. Really such a huge production. Amazing film, but banned for years and years mm. um, in Russia. And the film wasn't released until much later, 20 years or 40 years later. Um, when I saw it, oh, it was 10 years ago, I loved it so mm. much. And I thought, it, it's such a spirit, a celebration of the visual, it's visual anarchy and the, and the poetic language, but also not only visual, but the content, the spirit is is really the celebration of artistic creation of freedom. You know, mm. how I asked it should be politically socially but also artistically completely engaged but in in a free space um mm. and i thought why is that so little people uh so few people nowadays doing that they're mm. making quite conventional books or films um so i thought that's like my um you know it's sort of like my visual bible mm. and i remember before i was making ufo in the eyes i was watching so Cuba again and again mm. and i want to dedicate my little film to that film and to mm. that filmmaker um, and I made sure my, my main film crew watching that film. Mm. Um, and still, this is one of my favorite films. 
I'll have to watch it. I haven't seen it actually. Yeah, please, <laughs> yes. Um, as you were sort of saying there about moving from sort of making a really sort of like big big budget sort of narrative film uh, and to kind of like the films you've been making more recently, although I imagine it still must have still must have cost some money. The uh, uh, more recently, sort of Five Men in a Caravaggio, which is kind of like has is a different approach to some of those ideas of representation and uh, yes yeah absolutely um that film is really um well i was thinking about how to make a film about this Dafeng village in south china in shenzhen mm. actually it's outside of shenzhen near hong kong this village has you know 2000 artisan workers or originally they were peasants or immigrants they came to this little village and then they formed um, artisan village last 25 years so they copy or reproduced western classical art paintings for the last 25 years so the, the man can say you know Mona Van Gogh because it would be too easy for them they can do it mm. in 10 minutes or one hour um, but they, they could do much more sophisticated one you know say Da Vinci Leonardo Da Vinci or or Caravaggio's work mm. within two days by hand, not mm. you know photocopy. It's really by hand with painting brush. Mm. And I thought for a long time, how should I present that village? But I didn't want to make a straightforward documentary film; it would be a bit too boring. And I thought I do need to bring subjective elements, mm. um, the idea about image, um, and how do we connect? You know between us seeing the image it's something like john Berger say you know how mm. the way of seeing how do we you know see ourselves in the image and the representation of that mm. so then i was reading what benjamin's essay um he wrote in 1930 the what's called the the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction mm. and i thought that's perfect essay um somehow theoretically summed up in our time industrial time how uh, the me mechanical reproduction somehow smashed the, the the idea of the origin original artwork or mm. the originality of of an artwork. For example, cinema. You know, mm. my film say you know have uh, three hundred copies of my same film on the Digibeta or on the DCP on the mm. film print. Which one's original? The mm. original doesn't exist for a film as a media. Mm. Um, same with a photograph, you know, you can reprint. Um, so I thought that's interesting. So I used Watermeyam's essay as kind of entering point to that story. Um, and then my friend, the poet, uh, Vani Bianconi, he received the painting from that village as a, as a present mm. by his family and friends, which was uh, uh, Caravaggio's St. John in the Wilderness or mm. St. John the Baptist. And I thought, okay, that's a connection. I can somehow link these three um, angles together to make a more subjective film mm. about uh, in the relationship between the artist and the work. Mm. And you have it through, through again. It's through sort of uh, different perspectives on on the same same thing. So you have like uh, sections of the film are with the artist in 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 Dauphin. How did you track? Uh, did it, so was it that you heard about the Vanny sort of making the order, and then you sort of uh, traced traced back to the specific yes. artist who was, yes, who was making I, the reproduction. I is the film is kind of re I would say rearrangement of the timeline. Um, so that's why it's, it's funny whether you call it fiction or documentary. It, it mm. kind of you know I call it re rearrangement of of the of the real footages, non-fiction footages. Um, I went back to Dauphin Village, tried to find out who painted that Caravaggio's copy. Mm. And of course I couldn't find it. Um, some people some artisans just said, Well I I, I painted quite a few, you know. But me, you know, I did it, you know, in night for one night. I couldn't recognize which one is really mine because mm. my neighbor also doing the same painting every day. So mm. who knows which one is from my hand? It doesn't matter who did it. It's the <laughs> same painting by that strange 16th, 17th century Italian painter anyway. Mm. So it's this kind of non, non-authorship talk. Yeah. So I was just uh, walking around in the village, in that village, and I thought, well, I couldn't find the original painter who did that copy i just gonna find any painter who would yeah. do a copy for me again oh, okay then i found um chiming the, the painter and he said funny i never painted that uh it's just too complicated um, um yeah. 
Caravaggio, I know Caravaggio. Um, his work is too complicated, especially with shadow and the light. Yeah. I'm not very good with shadow and the light. And I said, never mind. Um, how long would it take you to do it? And he said, can you wait for two days? <laughs> and I said, two days only? Okay, <laughs> sure. So I just started, you know, I said, well, if I can just record how, yeah. you, how you paint, you know, from beginning to end. And he said, sure, but you have to allow me to go, you know, to do some kind of eating and mahjong, gambling in the night because I don't want to be just doing painting. Yeah. I need my leisure time too. So actually, the real hours he spent on doing that well, the very complicated painting, St. John, the, the wilderness, just a few hours. <laughs> he finished from sketch to the, to the, to the final. That's yeah. incredible. Like, um, and his wife helped to just yeah. to, to color it. You know, the John, the Baptist, the background, the, you know, the, the dark, <laughs> shadowy forest. The wife was just yeah. eating some lunch and the wife said, oh, okay, you have a break. You know, I, I do some shadow um, behind John. Yeah. So it was just family production, you know, without any fuss, very quick. <laughs> because that um, has has the the, uh, the guy who did the reproduction seen the film. The the Chimin. Yeah. So I showed him footage, some footages um, on a film. Um, for him, it was too ordinary. I think yeah. for him, it's like there's no dramatic value whatsoever. Uh, he couldn't see why I wanted to make film about it. Huh. And I said, it isn't uh, incredible skill, you know, for especially for Westerners, for Europeans. They pr they produced those masterpieces in 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 you know four hundred years ago, and then we little Chinese peasant or worker can sort of reproduce a copy, you know, within a few hours, um, mm. and not terrible. Um, mm. And it's complicated, you know, when you try to do the when you didn't study anatomy, but you do the, the human figures with shadow mm. and light, with Western paint, um, without training, it's kind of impossible for anyone to do it. Mm. And then those workers just say, well, if you did it just two or three years, you get it, you know how mm. to do Leonardo da Vinci. Mm. And I thought, still, it's quite amazing. But for them, it's just like producing, um, you know, Nike shoes or, mm. or, or or a shirt from some brand that they, mm. <laughs> for them, it's ordinary. But uh, that, it sort of strikes me that um, painting and kind of like the, the Western canon of painting is a sort of is something that um, recurs a few times in, in, in your films and, 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 and writing. There's the moment in um, uh, in UFO and her eyes where um, the, the the sort of central character um, leaves. The, having discovered the UFO sort of leaves the mine and is sort of starts an education again and there's I think there's the moment where she's being told about western perspective and painting and mm, that's right yeah um because that's really linked to my personal background my father was a painter all his life mm. and uh, when I was a bit younger I was trained for some years to do to do painting but mm. but more Chinese ink painting mm. and I remember after middle school high school uh, every evening afternoon I had to go to my father's studio which is near my our house I uh, just to do the flowers with its ink or mm. rocks and uh, I remember for like five afternoons you know in every afternoon I had to do rock with with a type of dry ink and then mm. other type of wet ink to the rocks I was so bored. I was 12, 13, 14 years old. Um, and also, my father, that kind of, he was a traditional ink painter. You know, he, he doesn't, he didn't use much color, mm. um, just ink. Mm. And for a young girl like me, I look at the Western painting, I thought, God, could we, why don't we just add pink or red, <laughs> you know? Um, and also, uh, traditional ink painting um, don't have much of human figures. Mm. In a, you know, it's just landscape. Um, and I remember my feeling of, um, could I do something more with story, with human, with human emotion, you know? Mm. Um, and my father said, well, just, we don't do that in landscape painting. Mm. And I think my connection with, with visual world is always more active one. So I didn't want to continue my father's uh, mm. profession. So I just... Uh, I, I went off and I wrote all the books and the novels later on. Um, even when I was a teenager, I began to write all these short stories. And I published mm. them when I was very young, when I was a teenager. I think I was longing for a more human-connected world with more color and sound, with mm. more stories. Um, and then later on, when I decided I'm going to go to film school to study, 
Um, so it's more like a combination of the visual world and the literature. Mm. And I remember my father said, well, that probably, that's the media in the future everyone would do. Yeah. And he agreed, so. Yeah. Well, it certainly comes across in the in the Caravaggio film because you have the, as you know, you're saying about sort of um, putting perspectives, uh, you know, sorry, about human, humanizing sort of things and putting kind of like uh, individuals in, in, I suppose, like the landscape that's, you know, St. John's in a landscape, isn't he? Um, but the something else that struck me about that film and particularly because you're mentioning kind of Walter Benjamin and uh, John Berger is about uh, the fact that it's it's five men and uh, it's I mean, one of the episodes of Ways of Seeing is about is about the male gaze uh, on sort of uh, on female nudes and paintings mm. and you sort of invert that by kind of as a, as a female filmmaker sort of filming these five men and gauging their represent their sort of reaction to this painting that's kind of interesting for me to do because most of my fiction films or films um i've done is always women women in the center because mm. it's more automatic in a way as you know i'm a woman um i feel natural comfortable from women's point of view women's gaze looking at male world or male male bodies and i thought this film would be interesting Sun as as kind of representation of our ideal youth mm. um, from Caravaggio, but also from you know our idea of youth. So it's kind of Oscar Wilde's Dory Gray, the the, the mm. painting of Dory Gray, the youth decade in the in the male the masculine masculinity, how we view that, the power and the beauty, um, and how the society build on top of that. Mm. So it's kind of strange attempt for me to to kind of making a visual commentary on that. And it's funny because all my other films are more or less all about women, uh, women power mm. or yeah, love or emotion. And I, I often in the, in the audience, in the q and I get a critic from an audience, why is that your film has no, this film has no women? I thought, oh, just look at my other films. I <laughs> really, at one point I had to get away from myself now and yeah. to, to, to look at male bodies, you know, once for all. <laughs> Well, because the, the uh, I've, sorry, I've forgotten again the name of the uh, the, the guy who's posing in the photographs. The, oh the yeah, artist, uh, the uh, French photographer Simon Simon Derrière. Yeah, so that's I mean that's a particularly kind of because um, you have the 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 guys who aren't the original painter sort of um, responding to uh, to the the Caravaggio in different ways, and you have he's draping himself on a on a on a tree and taking photographs. Absolutely, of I mean, thank God I have Simon. Um, you know, as as very close friend because he came, I think just before Brexit happened, he came to London. He said, "Well, England would be my home. I I had enough with Paris, the bourgeois mm. um, bourgeoisie Paris. I'm going to look for the wilderness in this country." But and then he was doing all these kind of photos between his own nudity and the nature, the wild England. But mm. uh, for many many photos, and I thought he could be great kind of transition element in this film um, Caravaggio in the wilderness or St. John in the wilderness it, he is a real one in the end of the film um, suggesting that mm. visual element so it was I think it was him kind of saved the film in the end yeah. well he uh, at the I think it was on the, the the first the first night on the Thursday he was uh, he, he got almost entirely naked in the in the bar at the Whitechapel. <laughs> it was sort of like it was a really bizarre moment when kind of like the, the the five well four of the five five guys from the film were wandering around kind of the mirrored bar of the Whitechapel, so having just almost kind of having walked off the screen. It was... He should do that before the film started, not <laughs> after the film started. <laughs> yeah. Um, and because also there's a, uh, I mean there's. Steve, um, Steve Steve Baker's sort of like um, painted version as well, kind of put next to it. I wonder. I wondered finally what the 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 artist um, did. Did he see the kind of the what what he thought of Steve's version? Yeah, um, it's interesting. You know, our question about the original work and how how you know the the, the great meaning we 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 put as as I read from this manifesto. You know, the narrative, the meaning we we added sentimentally on the on the supposed original work, um, and yet anything else is kind of fake and and banal and flat. Is which is very interesting because I don't view things in that way. Mm. Um, um, and when when Steve's a philosopher painter who was trying to repaint on top of that copy. And he said, this is bizarre. Um, I'm repainting on top of this copy as a third copy maker. Mm. But yet, um, 
my skill, I'm not sure my skill is as good as his Chinese um, artisan, you know. So, but anyway, anyway, you know, he's from the Western kind of narrative, you know, maybe um, we thought he's better in a way, you know, it's more kind of organic understanding mm. Christianity, you know, the whole thing, you know, or about Rome and that, Renaissance time. Um, I think Vani... Um, kind of still waiting for that painting to be completed by Stephen. So even though my film is finished, the painting is still being oh, really? painted. <laughs> I have to make another film when it's done. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much, Shalu. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Um, the the season uh, we we're talking about um, called Chia Chinese at um, the Whitechapel Cinema uh, in East London is uh, it has two more nights left on the, the 26th sorry the 25th and the 26th uh, some of the films that we're talking about are being shown on the Saturday and the Sunday uh, Jalu is talking at uh, Tate Britain I think with Nika Shukla at the Van Gogh exhibition on the 24th uh, and we here on Speak 2 on 2 will be back next week thanks very much thank you very much <laughs> This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.